Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. My name is Doug McNeil. I'm a climate scientist here at the Met Office and today our guest is Professor Jonathan Gregory. Hello. Hello. Hi, well Professor Gregory is here to talk to us about climate change and sea level rise. Um, Now um, Jonathan, I understand that you started off in physics, Um, so would you mind telling me how you got to climate and climate uh, modelling and climate change as a, as a professional career? I did, uh, as you said, my first degree is in physics, and then I became a particle physicist when I was a PhD student. That's what I, my subject was. And after that, I, um, when I had finished my PhD, I was, I was casting around, wondering what to do with it. And I decided that um, climate change, which was a subject, which was, so this is now... In fact, 30 years ago, this month, I started I started my first job. Oh, so, you, so you must um, uh, have started around the same time as the Hadley Centre. Yes, yeah, so, is... so my first job was not here. Uh, in fact, my first, well, not here, of course, because the Hadley Centre was in Bracknell in those days. But so my, we're, we're an extra, my, my just first to clear job, up. We're an extra. <laughs> my first job was at the University of East Anglia um, uh, in the Climatic Research Unit there. Yeah, so that was how I made the transition from particle physics to climate. I applied for a job at the UEA. Um, it was a very famous uh, which is a famous well. institution yes and, uh, and I worked there for Phil Jones who is well known of course Tom yeah. Wigley who used to be the director there and is now retired would you just like to describe uh, your, your academic specialities your, your specialities in the air system and, and what you've been working on in, in the last few years in, in the, more or less in the, all of my time except to some extent for the first year in, in the in climatic research unit when I moved to the Hadley Centre in 1990 it was because I wanted to work on um, modelling of the ocean atmosphere system in with the general circulation models, our computer climate models, as you know. I was going to say, so 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 we might want to describe what modelling is at this point because we're not talking, you know, plasticine. We're not talking uh, <laughs> a physical model. What yeah. kind, you know, what could, could you describe uh, what, what you mean by modelling? What we context? mean by a model is uh, um, a mathematical representation of how the of how the system works, the atmosphere in three dimensions, the currents in it, the ocean similarly is three dimensional and it has currents. They both move heat around and they both move water around. And all these things are physics and they're represented by certain equations, which which we write down as computer programs. And then we run the programs to simulate what will happen in the future of these systems. And these essentially are the same programs, uh, as you know, uh, as are used for weather forecasting or ocean forecasting on timescales of a few days. But for climate prediction, we run them for hundreds of years. And that means we have to run them in a more approximate fashion because we can't afford all the detail that is necessary for weather forecasts. Okay, so um, so this program we really want to focus, um, I guess, on something that uh, that really integrates all of those parts of the uh, the climate system you've been talking about, and something that's going to be really um, important for the next century as well. Um, and that's sea level rise. Uh, and I understand you've been working specifically uh, on sea level rise for the last few years. Of course, as you said, everyone has always known that sea level change is a possible consequence of climate change for all sorts of reasons, which no doubt we'll talk about. Um, but but to, we hadn't started to look at it in climate models. Um, so the Hadley Centre was amongst those centres um, which had a first go at trying to make sea level predictions based on climate models. And what, what were the barriers that were, what was stopping people looking at sea level, sea level rise in, in those models? Did they just not contain enough detail? Or um, it, Some things just hadn't been done uh, because it was an aspect that had not been looked at. Those are the things that are in the ocean. There are some technical obstacles 
to extracting sea level from the ocean model, but they were not insurmountable. It, it was simply a matter of uh, looking at some outputs in ways that hadn't been looked at before. Then there are other components of sea level rise, which are not to do with how the ocean is changing, but how to do with ice on land, how that will change. And those parts are even now not routinely represented in climate models. Um, and we have, to, we have to make predictions of them by using other models, which are fed with the output from the climate models. And so we had to begin to work on how to do that and how to add all these things up to make predictions of sea level rise overall. So I was working on that in the 1990s and then um, in 1998 in the preparation of the third assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change I became a lead author of the sea level chapter and I was also a lead author of the fourth assessment report and the fifth assessment report which was the most recently published one in 2013. I'm not working on the sixth assessment report now in preparation uh, although I am working of course as we all are on science that it will be a relevance hopefully to that assessment. Um, but yeah, so I've been working on sea level for a long time and the ERC grant was a useful, a useful way. It, um, that grant was particularly focused on, on the issue of uh, why is it that our predictions of sea level rise locally are rather uncertain. Uh, the, the reason why they are uncertain uh, in their patterns, in the geographical patterns of sea level change, is because the various climate models don't agree on these patterns. And so the, the, the project is, was really about why is that and what we can do about it. And we don't know the answer to that yet, but as a result of that project and other work which started at the end of that project and is now going on as an international collaboration, we are trying to get to the bottom of, of some of those factors. Okay, that's great. So, um, so maybe let's, let, let's back up a little bit. So we're talking about the future of sea level rise and, and, and uh, why there might be some uncertainty there. My understanding is it's, it's one of the more sort of... Um, one of the more certain aspects of, of sea level rise, isn't it? We, we know that it'll be positive, for example. We know that yes. there will be a sea level rise, it, there won't be a, a reduction in sea levels. Um, but, but could you describe um, how much uh, sea level has, has changed uh, in the historical period, you know, in the measurement period and before that, um, and how we know, and how we know that sea level has risen? Yeah, so we know, um, we know from the best the part that we know best is the part since the early 1990s since since the early 90s since 93 uh, there has been a succession of satellites uh, orbiting orbiting with the sole purpose of measuring sea level of course the satellites are a long way away from the earth thousands of miles um, but they can measure sea level rise by bouncing uh, radio waves off it it's a radar altimeter this always, uh, I was it's always just amazing that this, this yeah, can be done to, to from a, such a, a distance. Tiny, yes, a so an individual measurement is not so precise, yeah. but if you're talking about the global mean um, averaged over a year, then, then it, you get it to within millimetres, uh, how it changes That's, from one year yeah, to another. Fantastic, from, from thousands of It is of amazing, away, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. And consequently, we know from the satellite measurements that since 93, um, on average, sea level has been rising at about three millimetres a year on the global average. Um, in fact, it's a very straight line. It's not completely a constant rate, but it is very nearly constant. Um, then going back before that, uh, information is, is less, um, less comprehensive. Uh, we have, it, it comes from tide gauges, uh, which are devices attached to the shore, attached to solid land at the shore, and their purpose is, of course, to measure the height of the tide. Uh, and that's why they've long been installed in harbours so that people get to understand when the tide is high and when it's low. But if you average over a long enough period, you remove the tides, and what you have left then is mean sea level by definition. 
and that is not constant in time of course as we've just been discussing so the tide gauge records tell us how sea level has changed on a longer time scale since tide gauges were installed and that that isn't a very long time scale but there are some that go back a hundred years or so so we know that um, over over that over the last century or so sea level has written, risen by about 15 centimeters on the global average um, and that's the that's the that's, uh, kind of uh, time scale that we have measurements of that, sort of the of composition the atmospheric, atmosphere. Yes, and that's that, right. Other, other things exactly. As well. Yes, it, it's not as long as our estimates of global mean temperature change, because well, there haven't been tide gauges for as long as thermometers. But it's that that the same kind of the same kind of thing. That's interesting. It's, you'd think that a tide gauge or, or you know a, a mark might might be even even longer. In a very uh, few places, yes, yeah. but, but but not as a, a worldwide. Or of course okay. not, not. I mean, of course, it's not worldwide. That's the problem. As with as with thermometers, uh, there uh, old um, temperature measurements. There are many more of them from Europe and North America than for other parts of the world. And a particular part, um, a particular problem with sea level rise from tide gauge is that it's only measured around the coast, of course. And the coast is not most of the ocean. The coast, in fact, may be a rather untypical part of the ocean okay. because of particular coastal currents and other phenomena that only affect us near to the coast. Um, okay. So it's only the satellite which has really given us a broad view of the ocean as a whole. And that, so that's been a big change. However, um, sea level rise is a fairly large-scale phenomenon in the ocean. It's not terribly local, so the tide gauges do give us a reasonably good idea of the global mean. And then if we go back before that, we have less even less direct measurements so there are reconstructions of sea level change um, in particular places which people take as a, a as a indirect indication of the global mean going back a couple of thousand years and the main source of those are from are from coastal are from what are called salt marshes places which are partially inundated um, some of the time at the coast and and the um, the the detritus from the from the the, the uh, organisms that grow in the salt marshes give an indication of how deep the sea was on average at that at those places, and then by you can uh, from the from the rate at which these things are buried in the accumulating mud, um, you can and from other methods of dating you can work out. A, a, a time series of how sea level has changed at these locations. Wow. So I this, can imagine that's more uncertain. It's much more uncertain, of <laughs> course. This kind of reconstruction, however, tells tell us that that over that kind of time scale, sea level had been rising at about ten times slower on average. So so more like um, a tenth of a millimeter a year. Okay, so you've uh, got a longer one millimeter a year. Yeah. Can, so yeah. so it was definitely on the long time scales, on the thousand year time scale, it was smaller yeah. than it was in the instrumental record. But that's that's of course that's that's is only in what we call the Holocene, the recent part of the since the last ice age. Yeah. Uh, at the time of the height of the last ice age, um, twenty thousand years ago or so, global mean sea level was about one hundred and twenty meters lower. Uh, so that's a very big change, much bigger than anything that we are predicting in coming centuries. And that was because there were more ice sheets then that that most of North America was covered by the Laurentide ice sheet, which was up to four kilometers thick in places. And part, parts of, of Western Europe were covered by an ice sheet as well. And so, so all the water that was in the ice sheets as frozen water was not in the sea. So sea level was much lower. Um, and that, that, um, uh, that large excursion of 120 meters has happened repeatedly over the last million years. The interglacials are much shorter than the periods when there are large ice, ice sheets. <laughs> in the ice ages um, and um, 
but it hasn't been going on forever. It, it appears to have been a relatively unusual portion of Earth history. Um, in the Pliocene, um, the previous period, uh, going back two, two million years or so ago, um, the world was a warmer place and sea level was higher. Uh, we don't know exactly how much, probably not more than 20 metres, but, but, but higher. And then that still feels like uh, quite a lot. That's in, a lot. In the current yes. context, it's very you know, much a huge amount for human beings. Given that we're talking about millimeters a yes, year, yes, but small but, yeah. compared with 120 meters. Absolutely. And then when you go back on the very longest timescales, the geological timescales of hundreds of millions of years, the evidence is again even more fragmentary, and it can only be reconstructed by looking at the kinds of sediments that have been deposited in various places and whether they indicate um, uh, land or sea uh, on the continental shelves. Um, because yeah, I was going to say, yeah. so the geology gets at this kind of time scale, and maybe even uh, shorter time scales. Yeah. And for our own observations, yeah. uh, geology and um, the movement of the continents, whether mm. up or down, mm. get, gets involved um, and becomes a significant factor on our measurement. Is That's that, right. Is that right? It does. Yes. No. Of course, it, it dominates it. it. It dominates what's going on um, in terms of the measurements. Uh, right. But we've got, we've got ways of, of taking those large signals, excursions in the yes, in, but in with, the with yes, down, there are. Out. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, of course, not being a geologist, but but I know that there are large uncertainties in doing this. They indicate um, large sea level changes of of the order of 100 meters. I mean, that is sea level could have been many tens of meters higher than now, in some previous periods. Um, for example, in the Cretaceous. Well, we know the Cretaceous was a generally a warmer climate. So there were very likely no ice sheets um, then. Um, so if we were to remove the Antarctic ice sheet now, which is the largest repository of ice on land, then sea level would be 70 metres higher. But that doesn't explain all the sea level rise that some people have suggested could have occurred in geological time. So, so the rest of it must have to do with, um, with the height of the continents and where, where all the other stuff is, whether it's in the ocean or on the land. Um, but but it is difficult to measure because it only comes from a few places and and there are reasons why to do with the internal dynamics of the earth uh, some parts of the coastline might be lower than than we thought at certain times yeah. in particular there's there are measurements that are likely to be affected by the fact that there was a um a previous continental plate being subducted drawn into the ocean interior into the interior of the planet sorry um and the gravitational field of this of this subducting plate would suck down the sea level uh, and this this kind of thing has to be corrected for uh, that, there's very fragmentary information about sounds, this so. i mean that's that's in deep time but perhaps <laughs> that's we'll in get deep back time that's the, right yes we'll, yeah. perhaps we'll get yeah. back into the the, yeah. the gravity effects as well yeah. when it comes to the projection we probably will yes because, because uh, the same sorts of things are as you know uh, relevant yeah relevant yeah well that's great so so, yeah. so that's a, a fascinating uh deep dive into into deep history i think that's a, a, really, a really great context setter perhaps we could think about why sea level has changed in the last hundred years Absolutely. of our observational yeah, record that's right um uh, what are the processes that um are, are driving the changes mm -hmm. in sea mm -hmm. level uh, yeah at the, at the moment and in the past hundred years yeah um the first thing is the one that i mentioned at the beginning that we can kind of diagnose from um our climate models that's the um the effect of warming on the ocean uh, and the, the basic effect is that when you warm up the water it expands like most things do um, and so it just takes up more space it's and therefore the ocean is bigger <laughs> um, uh, but it's a pretty small effect so in fact uh, for one degree of temperature rise water expands by about a tenth of a percent when you warm things up they generally get bigger 
because the molecules are not so close together, because there's more energy. They jiggle around with more energy. Um, in fact, not everything gets bigger. And so people might be confused when they, if they are aware that when very cold fresh water is frozen, it gets bigger as it gets colder towards ah, yeah, freezing point. Too. But that, <laughs> that does not apply to seawater because it's full of salt. In fact, it always gets bigger, even from the coldest temperatures upwards. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that is the basic, the basic thing. So the, um, the expansion is very small. For, about, uh, for a degree of warming, you get about a tenth of a percent uh, increase in volume for, for the water. But the ocean is very deep about four kilometers deep on average. So you're multiplying a very big number by a very small number and you end up with an intermediate number of a few centimeters of global mean thermal expansion for the kind of a warming that has occurred. I was gonna say, you mentioned the one degree C there. Uh, uh, And that's the approximate warming over the last century, isn't it? At the surface, yes, that's right. Since the pre-industrial, surface warming has been about one degree C. So um, that's surface temperature, but the oceans, it takes time for that heat to it get does. into the oceans. That's right. Uh, is that right? How, how, what's the kind of processes which are involved in getting the surface warming into the ocean and then expanding that, uh, uh, expanding the ocean? Yes. Yeah, so these processes are, are slow, and so the whole ocean has not warmed by as much as the surface. It's warmed by less uh, as you go down. It's less typically. Uh, so the way in which the heat gets in is by being mixed in. Uh, partly by uh, the, near the surface by the wind stirring up the ocean, um, and then uh, lower below that by um, lots of small-scale turbulence is just kind of mixing the material up, um, mixing the water up, and then there are some large-scale circulations that take heat into the, in, into the deep ocean. Uh, in in the southern ocean, there is a big uh, a big wind-driven overturning circulation that forces warm water down uh, and brings cold water up. And in the North Atlantic, uh, near, near, nearer to our, our part of the world, there is um, the current, uh, which, which is often called the Gulf Stream, uh, which is on that, the Gulf Stream is the part of the current which is on the east coast of North America. But that same current continues across the Atlantic as the North Atlantic drift. Uh, and, and those waters sink in, in high northern latitudes. And although they're pretty cold there, when they sink, they are conveying heat downwards into the ocean. Um, and then the cold water returns uh, at greater depth and comes up again elsewhere in the world. So this overturning circulation is part of what is often called the global ocean uh, conveyor belt. Um, so that, that's another mechanism whereby some heat gets into the ocean. The ocean is, as oceanographers say, it's kind of ventilated, meaning it is somehow exposed to the surface. Because in fact, this is, this is unlike the atmosphere because the ocean is the other way up. So with the atmosphere, um, the atmosphere is heated from the surface because all, most of the sunlight, as you know, gets through the atmosphere, heats up the surface, and then the surface heats the atmosphere. So the atmosphere is, is uh, what we would call unstable. Um, it's, it's being heated from the bottom, and that tends to make air rise, uh, and, it, and the whole thing mixes itself up. And you get convection and over, clouds. You get convection and, and clouds, yeah. that's right. The ocean is also heated from the surface, but th- that's the top of the ocean, so it's upside down, and in fact it doesn't mix it doesn't mix. So at the equator, you don't get mixing when you're heating at the surface. At the, at the, in the atmosphere, that is where you get motion because it's heated at the surface and it's going up. In the ocean, that makes it more stable. It makes it more difficult to mix. So it's actually the least mixed parts at low latitudes where it's warm. 
and it's at high latitudes where the convection occurs because the ocean is being made cold at the surface and the cold water sinks and also because sea ice forms and, the, and when the sea ice forms it expels the salt that's in the seawater because the ice is fresh and this salt is then deposited in the water underneath it makes it more dense because it's become saltier and, and readier to sink. So, so it's just that they both have convection, both the atmosphere and the ocean, but it occurs in different places. And so this is, this, this is um, so you were talking about the, the overturning circulation yeah. there, the, the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, is yeah. that right? Um, so one of the great sort of um, ocean conveyor belt, I've, I've heard it described, and it's dragging energy from the, from the, from the warm tropics up, yes. to, up to the northern, northern latitudes. That's right. Keep, keeping us warm um, in some ways. Uh, is it keeping northern Europe a bit warmer than it that's should right. be in the winter because of the warm water that's been com- coming from the east coast of, of Central America yeah that, that's right um, and, yeah. and one of the, the great um, uh, plots of one of the most fantastic movies uh, 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 the, day, uh, the Day After Tomorrow is that right um, it was, was that this overturning circulation would, would somehow turn off and, uh, and uh, we'd, we'd be subject to um, these crazy uh, uh, um, uh, ice sheets and huge um, ice-like conditions, or you know, o- almost overnight, uh, which obviously is is uh, completely bonkers. But um, was based on some sort of earlier work um, uh, that came from science. Is there still a risk? Do people still think that that this overturning circulation might might switch off, um, or is that now no longer seen as a as, as a major risk? Well, there's evidence that um, that the overturning circulation was weaker in some past periods uh, and some of its changes from being weak to strong or strong to weak were rapid. Um, that's indirect evidence but, yeah. but it's fairly solid evidence. Um, so that's, that's, the reason, that's the reason for concern. Uh, there that, was that possibility that it exists. could happen due to climate change. Yes, yes but um, models of the kind that we use for climate prediction don't, don't predict this, don't predict that this will happen. Um, they do predict that it will get weaker, but they don't predict that it will collapse, and certainly not suddenly. Um, when they, when it's getting weaker, it's something that happens over many decades, not something that happens in five minutes, like it appeared to happen in the film. In the film, yeah, which <laughs> yeah. is, you know, it yeah. would be it would, uh, maybe yeah. a slightly duller film if it happened over it would, decades. It would, it would. People wouldn't <laughs> be prepared to go for a film that long. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. great. So we're talking with uh, our guest today, Professor Jonathan Gregory, um, and we're talking about sea level rise, both in the past and in the future. So we were just talking about um, the overturning circulation of the circulation of the ocean uh, in the North Atlantic there. Um, And I understand that circulation of the ocean and the ocean currents can play quite a significant role in sea level rise uh, regionally, how it changes um, uh, across the globe and how it's different across the globe. Mm. Yeah, so the the ocean currents reflect the fact that um, the arrangement of heat in the ocean is not uniform. Some places are warmer than others, some places heat up more than others, and the places that heat up more expand more. And we get these, we get uh, gradients of sea surface where there is a contrast between warm water and cold water. And, and so one such is, for example, the Gulf Stream, the North Atlantic Current that we were talking about a before. Strong, strong current it's a strong current and well. it's on a strong contrast between warm water and cold water. Right. Um, so um, we expect that if the AMOC changes, there will be associated sea level change. In fact, that particularly affects the American East Coast around New York and so on. So New York is a that part of the coast is a region where sea level uh, change is predicted to be larger than the global average, 
because partly of the changes in the AMOC that models predict. Um, but it's also uncertain because those changes are themselves uncertain. Um, but it's a, it's a reflect it's an it's an example of the fact that um, that it's, it's that sea level change is not uniform because of this because of the differences in where the heating occurs and the cooling occurs and also where where it becomes more or less saline because precipitation and evaporation will also change and alter alter the ocean's salinity. So let's let's just, let's just back that up for a minute. So we've got so but by saline you mean the amount of salt in the water. Yeah. And um, as um, as evaporation occurs so you're taking fresh water out of uh, the ocean um, and the remaining water becomes more salty right that's and, right and as you were talking about earlier yeah. with the brine rejection that yeah. means you've got water which is heavier yeah. more dense that's and right more prone to sinking mm -hmm. and, and and contrary wise if you have an increase in rainfall you make the water fresher and that makes it less dense. Mes uh, make, make yeah. less. Okay, so, 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 so that, it sort of cats they, can sit on the yeah. surface. Uh, yeah, uh, so, so and overall you end up with, with places where there is, um, where you're making the water less dense, uh, you get sea level rise relatively greater than other places. Okay, okay. Um, so, so, yeah. and, and, um, so perhaps, so changes in precipitation mm -hmm. in the future are going are gonna to have a large They can have effect that. too. In fact, the, if the temperature effect is dominant, right. but, but the salinity effect is non-negligible. We okay. have to take it into account in making projections. I guess if you're, if you're engineering. Uh, yeah, you know, if uh, you want to know regionally, yeah. But, but as I said earlier, when you were talking about the European project, it's a big uncertainty what these patterns are, uh, so the where, where the heat goes, yes, yeah. where the dynamics uh, puts the heat yeah. uh, and how it changes. Okay. Um, how the mixing changes that I talked about taking up heat into the deeper ocean. Um, and, and the representation of these processes, especially the small scale ones, the mixing processes that we find it hard to observe. We can, we can see the North Atlantic current, um, but we, we can't easily measure the effect of the small scale mixing that's going on throughout the ocean interior. So it's those parts, especially the things associated with what we call ocean eddies, which are things like the cyclones and anticyclones in the atmosphere, um, the effects of those phenomena uh, on 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 the transport of heat into and out of the ocean are very uncertain because the things themselves are rather uncertain. That's the biggest uncertainty in ocean models, I suppose. Um, so for all those reasons, we, we don't know what the patterns are, what the magnitude of the effect is. Um, with, there are some common features amongst the models, um, but there are many differences, and this is what we're trying to nail down okay. uh, in ongoing that, research. That, 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 <coughs> I guess... Um, the ocean is difficult to observe, isn't it? One yes. Of the, one of the, one of the, we can't see into it. Can't that's see the into, you can see the thing. top of it, and you can look at it from <laughs> yeah, satellite, and you can measure right. how high it is. And, yeah. But, but um, I understand that um, the Argo floats have been, have been uh, sort of a, a great observation that's record right. the last, uh, the last yeah. sort of decade or couple of decades. Have, have they changed the way we think about that? Uh, the, the, how the heat travels into the ocean? They have not so far changed the way we think about it, but they are giving us more precise estimates of some aspects. Yes, okay. they've given us a lot more information. It's very important. With the aid of the Argo floats, it's possible to, um, uh, as people say, close the sea level budget uh, since since 2000. So I should explain uh, that an Argo float is, is a, a pretty nifty bit of kit that uh, previously, when you were looking at uh, taking the temperature of the ocean depths or, or the energy of the ocean depths, you would you would throw something over the side uh, and uh, we've talked about this in podcasts before um, uh, and you'd lower something off the side of the ship and, and bring it back up again and you'd have a, 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 a measurement from a thermometer. Uh, but an Argo float is you, you throw it over the side and it floats free and it, it bobs along and then sinks and profiles down through the water taking temperature measurements and then, uh, and then uh, floats along at 
depth? What, what kind a of depth? A thousand meters. They float at a thousand meters. They float at a thousand meters. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they pop back up again. And yes, they take the profile as they come to the surface. Fantastic. And then they transmit the information and they go back down again. And they and, and they do this for a, a number of uh, Until they months or years. Um, yes. Or? Yes. I don't know what their average lifetime is, but they last for quite a while. And I understand there's a lot of them. There are a lot of them. Yes, several thousand. Several thousand. Yeah. Okay. So this, all this, over the world now. So yeah. seeing as you can't do remote sensing on the ocean at depth, this mm. is you know ocean robots are definitely the way forward. That's right. Yes, I mean, it's, it has led to a big increase in the amount of information. It hasn't led to a, a fun, any fundamental change in how we view things, but it allows us to quantify things much more accurately and than we could previously do. It's a relatively short period yeah. now, of course, as well. Yeah. It's not the whole century. It's just, you know, 15 years. Um, but, but over that period, it allows us to close the sea level budget, meaning that we can now, we are simultaneously measuring um, the sea surface using the altimeter, the thermal expansion using the Argo float, so actually they measure the temperature, but from the temperature we can calculate the thermal expansion. And the third part, which we haven't talked about yet, the ice sheets, are also being measured from space. So over that period, all those things are being measured. So if you add up the contribution estimated from measurements of the ice sheets and that estimation from Argo for thermal expansion, um, and the glaciers, similarly also land ice, you, you can explain the total measured by the altimeter. So, so that gives us confidence that we understand we're, we're what's going on. We're nailing down all of these uncertainties yeah. as we go. That's right. Now, yeah. could, could you um, explain um, the, the various contributions from the ice sheets? So which ice sheets are you talking about? You're talking about the glaciers as well. Mm -hmm. What uh, our understanding of the various contributions over the last century or so has been to sea level rise from each of those? So we reckon that the, um, the glaciers, uh, apart from the ice sheets, so the ice sheets... Also, have glaciers. <laughs> yeah. The ice sheets are the are the ones that occupy the continents of Greenland and Antarctica. Um, that, but as you said, uh, there are also glaciers. So there are glaciers that are fringing the Greenland ice sheet, uh, and there are some other ones on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, yeah. So it's a, in those regions, it's a bit difficult to know what you count as a glacier and what you count as an ice sheet. But there isn't always a clear separation. But there are glaciers everywhere else in the world where it's mountainous as well and ice caps. So the distinction between these things, glacier, ice cap and ice sheet, is just a matter of scale. They're all the same kind of thing, so they're all made from snow that falls, and as more snow falls on the snow, it compacts because it gets squashed, and so it turns from snow into ice. And then, and then when there's enough weight of ice on top of the ice, it starts to deform um, because ice is, well, solid, not completely rigid, uh, and, and it deforms under its own weight and the whole slab squeezes its way downhill. Kind of like a pancake. Yeah, well, <laughs> pancakes are pretty thin though, aren't they? Yeah. So you have to imagine like maybe like, like more a, like a blancmange when you turn it on okay. the side. Uh, but it actually flows rather than merely changing shape. Okay. <laughs> um, maybe a chocolate pudding would be more like it. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. There must be some uh, glaciologists out there who can tell us the appropriate... It's a very, very slow process, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, the other, so that's so that's that what a glacier is. So glaciers appear everywhere in the mountains where there is more snowfall in the winter that will melt in the summer, and then the excess builds up and it flows downhill to places where it's warmer, and 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 it goes on extending until it reaches a balance, where where as much snow is falling at high altitude, as is melting at low altitude, um, and the ice sheets are the same. So the green and ice sheet is is quite similar to that, but in um, uh, not all of it reaches the sea, so not all of the, the ice that accumulates on the ice sheet, the snow as snow and turns into ice, uh, melts before it reaches the ocean. 
and the rest of it goes off as icebergs. So it just reaches the coast and falls off and floats away. And with uh, Antarctica, melt, melt then as well, and it melts in the yeah, ocean, yeah. of course. Yes. But you've so, taken it from the land and put it into the ocean. That's so right. That's the difference so between it came from ice. the ocean in the first place, of yeah. course, because okay. it was evaporated yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, from the ocean. Then it would rained or snowed on the ice sheet. But yes, you're right. It's different from sea ice, although it's floating. Icebergs are different from sea ice because sea ice is formed by freezing seawater. Yeah. So the sea ice is never more than a few meters thick, um, <clears throat> and um, most of it melts in the summer some of it survives from year to year and a decreasing fraction of it as as we know in the arctic has been surviving from year to year but the the icebergs that come off the ice sheets are much bigger than that they're generally hundreds of meters thick or tens of meters thick because they're the edge of the ice sheet which has just reached the reached the edge of the continent uh, in antarctica it's much colder than in greenland so there is almost no surface melting and, and almost all the ice uh, is uh, it comes off as icebergs it doesn't come off directly into the ocean. In some places, the ice sheet doesn't stop at the edge, but it carries on as a kind of attached platform called an ice shelf that continues over the ocean, which is hundreds of meters thick. And the ocean, it's floating on the ocean, although it's still attached to the ice sheet on the land, its weight is being supported by the ocean. So from a sea level point of view, what counts is how much ice is crossing the line where it leaves contact with the land. Because okay. as soon as it leaves contact with the land, the ocean yes. is supporting it. And then it's, it's contributing, so it's to, contributing sea to sea level rise. Right. Um, um, but, and that, but it does go on continuing, but it's subject to being moved around by tides and so on. And, it, and, and, and a bit on surface melting, of course. And eventually it just breaks up and floats away as large icebergs. Um, and my understanding is that that, that process yeah. um, uh, is a highly uncertain, and b um, is one of the one of the major sort of uncertainties in how fast we might be losing ice from yeah. Antarctica. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so it's it's not so uncertain now because we've got the satellites how much ice we are we are losing, because they can what they are measuring is a bit like with the altimeter of the sea. There there are there are ice sheet altimeters as well that are measuring the surface of the ice. So we know how much it's getting thinner, and that it's getting thinner because ice is going into the ocean. At a, so it's always been doing that, but there was there was presumably, or you can imagine, there was a balance between the rate at which snowfall was accumulating and the rate at which it's going off into as icebergs. Um, and so, so long as those two things are in balance, the surface height will not change. Uh, but if the if the if the rate of snowfall changes, or if the rate of discharge into the ocean changes, then you would expect the surface height will change. And probably both of those things have been happening, but in some parts of the Antarctic ice sheet, there have been increases, right, rapid increases during the well-observed period of the rate of discharge of icebergs. So there is a lot of thinning going on in these places. Now, why that's happening um, is is more uncertain. We know that it is happening, but why it's happening is more uncertain. But it it, it must be due to um, uh, something to do with the ice shelves into which the ice is discharging and it's thought that what's going on is that the ocean has got warmer and that has made the ice shelves thinner those are the continuations of the ice sheets floating mm -hmm. on the ocean and as the ice shelves have got thinner um, they are exerting less resistance to the flow of the ice behind they exert resistance because uh, they are in some places scraping past coastlines or on the bottom or they, they may be in contact with the bottom in just a few places where there are there are sort of hills on the bottom of the okay, ocean. Causing friction. Causing, causing friction, friction, that's right. Okay. Or, or because they are flowing, the ice sheets are, ice shelves, some parts of the ice shelves are relatively fast flowing, but other parts of the ice are slow. So there is a kind of uh, region where there's a contact between slow moving ice and, and fast moving ice, and the slow moving ice exerts a, a, a resistance. 
So if you make the ice shelves thinner, all these resistive processes get weaker. And that means that the ice sheet behind is moving into the ocean more quickly. So it's something to do with the thinning of the ice shelves. And these processes can now be modelled with... Um, within you know we these models are reasonable within the range of uncertainty from the observations that we have so that refers the question to the ocean why is the ocean getting warmer and that's in those regions and that's more difficult because we really don't have many measurements of ocean temperature near to antarctica and greenland because they're difficult places to observe the argo floats do go there of course because they can't help it they float everywhere but they they tend to get lost uh, <laughs> under, as, under as you would in the southern ocean <laughs> yeah. i can imagine yeah, yeah. um and uh, so we haven't got a lot of information about that. Uh, so we have some from models, but models are limited in their accuracy in these places, partly, again, because we have so little information, we, we can't refine the models. Um, <clears throat> so we think that uh, since this is particularly an issue for Antarctica, it is an issue for Greenland, but it's more important for Antarctica, it is to do with, cold, with sorry, relatively warmer water having approached the Antarctic uh, ice sheet, having come onto the Antarctic continental shelf, and this is probably associated with changes in westerly winds in the Southern Ocean. And these may be something to do with human-induced climate change, or they may not. They might be unforced natural variability of the climate system. They might be caused by human activity, but not by greenhouse gases, but by ozone, because ozone, the change in the ozone hole over Antarctica has an effect on the circulation of the atmosphere over Antarctica, and that may have affected the westerly winds. And so thus the ice sheet. So, so all these things are linked together, but we, yeah. we, because these things have been going on for some time and we haven't had good observations, it's hard to be sure what exactly is causing what. So those observations are absolutely crucial to, they are. to maintain and yeah. to, to take new observations, yeah. new, new ways of, of getting yeah. that information. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so, um, so one thing that is perhaps more certain is, is, uh, is the loss of, of glaciers. Glaciers, of glaciers are well high, observed high they are, miles yes. Miles. And it, uh, my understanding is that most of the world's glaciers are retreating. That's right, that right? yes. So, that, so that in fact the glacier contribution to sea level change over the historical period is comparable to the thermal expansion. It may be bigger in fact, but they're roughly the same size, a few centimetres each. Um, and it is well established, as you say, and practically all glaciers are retreating. Um, and um, that's consistent with warming. So, so this is um, so you've got very high mountains. You've yeah, got, you've got. Um, are you sort of basically expanding the point, or or making higher the point at, at which glaciers start to mount, or are you making them warmer, or are you taking them above um, uh, above freezing level? What's the, what's the process that's going on that's called co- by making them warmer? You are you are meaning that more of the glacier is going to be subject to some melting during right. the summer. It goes the melting goes higher up the glacier, so more melting overall occurs. And if you have the same amount of precipitation, that means, on average, the ice will not get as far down the hill before it's melted. And that's why the glacier is retreating. So it's not that the ice is actually going uphill, it's just that it's not coming as far downhill as as it did. They are conveyor belts, the glaciers, and the the ice comes through them, I mean, on different timescales, depending on how big it is, but, but decades to centuries is the timescale of renewal of all the ice in a glacier. Whereas with the ice sheets of Greenland and Antarctica, the renewal timescale is thousands of years. So glaciers are much more rapidly reacting things. And that mm-hmm. is why, although they contribute much less sea level rise overall, all the glaciers in the world added up contribute maybe 30 centimetres, would contribute maybe 30 centimetres of sea level rise compared with the seven metres from the Greenland ice sheet or 70 metres from the Antarctic ice sheet. Um, because they, they are in much warmer climates, uh, they have a higher mass turnover, a higher throughput of ice. They react more quickly, and that's why they've made a relatively large contribution 
in, in the 20th century. But so the war is consistent with warming, uh, the fact that the, the glaciers would retreat. Um, that can be counteracted by an increase in snowfall. And so sometimes glaciers do advance for some time, but it requires a very big increase in snowfall. It requires a 20% or 30% increase in snowfall to counteract the increased melting from a degree of temperature rise. So since, since we, we, we as, you, as you know, as a climate model, we generally expect that precipitation will go up by two or 3% per degree, um, you will not, in general, get a 30% increase for each degree okay. of temperature rise. And so on average, the, the melting will win and the glaciers will get smaller. And is that the, <coughs> is that the same kind of, no, it must be slightly different numbers for the ice sheets. So the ice sheets are very high, aren't they, in the same way that mountains are yeah, high? So and they the, sort of accumulate snowfall. That's right. Well. So as we said, for Antarctica, there isn't any melting. So it's all a matter of whether the precipitation will change and whether the discharge will change. There isn't any melting in the equation. For Greenland, it's about half melting and half discharge is what balances the precipitation. So all of those terms could change. Snowfall, melting and discharge into the ocean are all potentially important for the Greenland ice sheet. So this might be a really good uh, point to, to talk about the future and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the various contributions. We've, we've talked about all of the, um, or I think most of the, the direct uh, contributions to sea level rise in the future. But we, it would be good to think about um, how much sea level rise there could be in the future, what might drive that, mm -hmm. um, and which of those processes is going to be most important mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. over the next kind of 100, yep. and, uh, and, and I imagine much longer timescales as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 100 years and, and longer timescales. Uh -huh. uh -huh. um, so you've been involved in, in the, uh, the IPCC process. We, we heard about that earlier, and, and there have been some, some, some recent uh, reports on, on the ice sheets and the ocean, yes. which you've been involved with as well. And there's CMIP 6 coming up as well. So yes. So um, could you describe um, some of the things that some of the projections that you've been working on for the last um, for the last five years, I understand, <laughs> or for the last <laughs> longer years and, and yeah. how and how that um, how what we're going to learn um, if, or what you would learn if you went and read the IPCC projections and uh, and your own thoughts about um, how serious sea level rise is going to be over the next kind of century? Um, so the, the things that will cause sea level to change in the coming century are the same ones as has caused it to change in the last century, but more because we expect more warming than has occurred in the last century. Um, so just to, just to back yeah, up, we've had back about, up, we've uh, had thermal uh, expansion. Uh, uh, yeah. But we've had about one Sorry. degree of warming in, oh, since pre-industrial. Yes, yeah, so, and we've so, had 15 centimetres of sea level and rise 15 also. centimetres, yeah. it's a good, good reminder to yeah. get the context. Yeah. Um, uh, and so what kind of numbers are we talking about over the next century and perhaps the next uh, few centuries? So for temperature rise, we are talking about um, several degrees of temperature rise by 2100. It depends in the projections, it depends on how much carbon dioxide is emitted principally. Um, and for sea level rise, we are talking about a range by 2100 of, of between a few tens of centimetres or a, up to a metre or so um, of global mean sea level rise. Now, because as we've discussed, sea level rise is not uniform. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that the, that the global mean number will apply everywhere. Uh, it, it, it would vary by up to a factor of two but most places will be within 20% or so of the global mean number, according to the models. So there's uh, going to be a few winners and a few, a few real, real losers. We mentioned there, New York earlier. Are there other there, places there, which there are going to be... There'll be very few places where sea level will fall. Um, there are some places where sea level, even by 2100, might be falling. Those are the very restricted regions where there were large ice sheets in the last ice age, and the land is still rising because it's been relieved of the load of the ice sheet. So in Stockholm, for instance sea level may still fall um, because that's a bigger effect there right right in the middle of a former ice sheet 
whereas in most parts of the world sea level will rise everywhere else but but more in some places than others um, so partly this is because of the ocean currents and the, where the heat is stored as we talked about partly because it's the effect of the ice sheets um, so the ice sheets add water to the ocean uh, which has an effect on global mean sea level rise if they lose ice but that effect is not uniform too um, and that is because uh, the movement of ice from the ice sheet to the ocean is 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 a movement of mass uh, around the globe and this mass which was ice and is now water has a gravitational attraction um, and so the effect of reducing the amount of ice on the ice sheet is that is that it's not attracting the ocean near to it as much as it did before because it's got less mass so the ocean near to it tends to fall because of that that's amazing. So, so what what are the kind of scales that we're talking about? How close to the ice sheet, or how far the closer away from the you ice get, sheet, the bigger the effect is. is. Yeah, yeah. So, and what, um, and what in terms of millimeters or centimeters or, or whatever? How, what kind of size of effect could that be? Well, if we at this distance from the Greenland ice sheet, um, for that ice sheet, we are about neutral. So, if you if you add a meter of sea level globally, mean by melting some of the Greenland ice sheet, uh, sea level doesn't change here. Um, meaning that that metre of sea level rise from the added water has been counteracted by a metre of sea level fall because the green ice sheet isn't attracting the sea right. here wow, so okay. strongly. It's large. Yeah, so yeah. it's a large effect. Yeah. And if, so if you're nearer the ice sheet than that, of course the overall effect is a sea level fall rather than a sea level rise. But, but, contra- but contrary-wise, <laughs> in the rest of the world, the effect is bigger than the global mean because that water has to go somewhere. Um, so there's this gravitational effect. In addition to that, there is an effect on the solid earth um, in the same way as I just mentioned for ice sheets that have now disappeared uh, if you relieve the Greenland or Antarctic ice sheet of some of its mass the continent underneath rises up because it's been somewhat unloaded and then everywhere else in the world subsides somewhere uh, to counteract that and then thirdly for the Greenland ice sheet more than the Antarctic ice sheet there is an effect on the rotation of the earth because the Greenland ice sheet is not quite on the North Pole of course the North Pole is the Arctic Ocean which is occupied by sea um, so when you melt the Greenland ice sheet, you are somewhat uh, changing the way mass is arranged with respect to the axis of rotation of the Earth. And this causes the axis slightly to change to conserve angular momentum. Uh, and so this also has an effect on, on, on sea level worldwide. That's amazing. So we're getting into, you know, um, much larger effects than, than, than just local regional we're getting into almost solar system effects. It feels, That's right. It feels like we're in very large scale point. things. Yes, yeah. these things. Uh, uh, yeah. But but a huge number of processes that we're having to yeah. take into account. That's right. Yeah. When you to want calculate to calculate global think about uh, local sea level change. Local That's sea right. Level changes. So then, yeah, but all these things you need to know about to talk about the impacts because nobody wants to know practically what is global mean sea level rise except as a guide to what they are going to experience themselves, and it's a reasonable guide but not a very good one. That's why we want regional sea level projections. And then, of course, the, for most parts of the world, the principal impact of sea level change is changes in sea level extremes, like, like that is the impact of most aspects of climate change. If you raise mean sea level by a relatively small amount, you can have a relatively large effect on how often uh, a particular level of the sea is passed. So much because like heat waves, there's isn't fluctuation, it? Yeah. yes. It's exactly like distribution heat waves. Of, you have uh, a distribution, distribution of, yes. of rises, and therefore <laughs> yeah. you hit those tails of the distribution That's right. more frequently. With sea level, you can kind of picture it because you, you imagine that you have built a flood defense so that on average, uh, on average, in the worst storm, once every 100 years, the sea will get to the top of this flood defense and come over the top. 
Well, obviously, if you keep exactly the same occurrence of storms, but you raise sea level by 10 centimetres, this is going to happen more often because it doesn't have to be such an extreme storm to get it over the top. And because of the nature of, 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 the, of, the, of the probabilities of extreme events compared with the average sort of events, the same as with heat waves, but more extremely so, um, the probability of extremes becomes much greater. So it is it reckon, reckoned, and, and this is a point that's made in the SROC, the special report that you just mentioned, but it's already in the AR5, the previous IPCC report, that sea level extremes will become 10 or 100 times more likely with the kinds of sea level change that we're projecting meaning that something that occurs once every 100 years will become an every year occurrence. Wow. So that's a big impact. It's a massive impact yeah. when it comes to engineering. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and to, to thinking about building infrastructure for the next uh, 100 years. Uh, so to put that in perspective in terms of impacts, um, I, I've been handed this uh, really useful fact sheet by producer Claire. Thank you. Uh, more than 600 million people or around 10% of the world's population live in uh, coastal areas that are less than 10 metres above sea level. So huge numbers of people. Nearly 2.4 billion people or 40% of the world's population live within 100 kilometres of the coast. So coast is, is, is where pe we put big cities, uh, we have uh, huge amounts of, of human <coughs> infrastructure, uh, and, and it feels like that's going to continue into the future. We're going to have to be investing uh, massively in, in protecting vulnerable uh, coastlines and vulnerable people. Um, is that fair to say? Yes, I mean, of course, the, what we have to do depends on how much sea level rises, and that's, that's the big uncertainty, and we can't make firm predictions. Um, and this is a big problem for people who wish to uh, de design future defences. Um, and uh, it's a recurrent problem. So in, in, the, in the context of uh, discussions arising from, from IPCC reports, there, has been there have been debates about what sort of advice scientists can usefully give to, to planners about this sort of thing. And it, it really depends on how risk averse you are, what you need to plan for. And the, if possible, the best thing to do is to retain flexibility because we don't know what's going to happen. So we would like to wait and see. So that means, for example, if you if you are going to need a bigger a bigger flood barrier, the um, Thames barrier, for instance, the Thames barrier, in the yeah, UK so is, is, is a good example yeah. where it was decided to do nothing for the moment <laughs> and wait for a bit longer to see what happens. Okay. Um, in general, if you if you are going to do, do, build a new flood barrier, it would be a good idea to build it with larger foundations than. Then you expect you, you will need, right. and, and you build yeah. what you need for the moment. It's preparing for nothing, <laughs> but you prepare surprises. for something else that might happen. Yeah, but people can't always do that. Sometimes they have to build something that is going to be safe for a hundred years, so then they have to be very risk averse, or, or, uh, or a thousand other, years. Or, or the other thing I was thinking was, um, for example, small island states who yeah. can't build in flexibility they can't. Yeah. because their land may. Yeah, so there are part, probably places where where. They will, well, some some places will not be possible to live in anymore um, because there is there is no way that you could protect them. That's right. And and places also are, uh, another thing that islands are subject to is coastal is saline intrusion at the coast. Although the water the water table is is affected um, by by the the rising of sea level means that the aquifer gets gets polluted with water coming no in from the sea. Water. So it's not fresh water anymore. Yeah. Oh yeah, which makes places <coughs> even if even if they're not even if there's physically land there you yeah. wouldn't be able to That's I guess right. that would that would affect not only the humans but also um, uh, ecosystem right. processes yeah. And, uh, yeah. in those places. So the 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 special report talked about um, many things and uh, yeah, I mean it talks about both the physical science and the impact on society and how society can adapt. Um, it talks about um, it also talks about in not sea level, but in other regions of what's going on in the ocean, uh, the occurrence, the effect of other aspects of climate change on ocean life, 
for example, the, the acidification of the ocean because of the rising carbon dioxide uh, <coughs> and, and the, the occurrence of what are called marine heat waves. So the report that this report has a striking um, statement about marine heat waves which cause damage to coastal reefs becoming maybe 50 times more frequent and and there being no part of the world where where coral reefs will not suffer extinction um, because because the climate will not the ocean climate will no longer be suitable for them uh, but obviously with all these things even this this is even under the most moderate scenario in general the impacts the size of the impacts depends on the size of the climate change okay I, I, and uh, no. one thing that i've always been fascinated by and it sounds like this is this this might be true in terms of sea level rise is this idea of um the irreversible change the irreversible change yes and, and, and i understand that some of the, some of the ice heat processes mm-hmm. may be on a sort of human time scale yeah. may be irreversible yeah. already or there yeah. may be some uncertainty about yeah. that yeah so you said earlier quite correctly that the time scales go beyond 2100 <coughs> especially for sea level rise so we, it, it may be possible to stabilise climate change by 2100, meaning global mean temperature, say, but um, that would not lead to a stabilisation of sea level change, even under the most mitigating scenarios when climate change is is stabilised at one or one and a half degrees of global warming by 2100. Sea Which level, is, that's quite a that, and that's a big, target. big thing to do. Yeah. yeah, sea level then is predicted to be rising about the same as now, or or a bit more, or a bit less, and that will continue for a long time because thermal expansion is slow. And because the ice sheets are even slower, uh, and uh, as you say, there may be some thresholds. There may be a threshold um, for the Greenland ice sheet in particular uh, about whether um, a certain level of warming would cause it, uh, at least partially, to be lost. Uh, so that if that warming went on uh, for a long time, uh, uh, and and the ice sheet got smaller, even if you subsequently reversed this it would not grow back to its present size. So this is one of the things yeah. that, that we're thinking about is reversing global warming, sort of drawing down carbon dioxide right. from you the atmosphere. You may not be able to put everything back to how it was before, even if you managed to put the surface climate back. So things are irreversibly yeah. changed. And, yeah. and, 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 and the Greenland ice sheet being a huge part of the component yeah. of, the, of the Earth system would have a major impact. Yeah. Sea level could be, potentially be several metres higher uh, forever, and or at least of... until there was another ice age, which is not something we... We expect we to happen for a while, we probably would find it convenient. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. And I'd like to say a, a great thanks to Professor Jonathan Gregory for taking us through a whistle-stop tour of the Earth system and how it relates to sea level rise, uh, the past, the present, and the future. Um, this has been Mostly Weather, a Metaphysics podcast. Uh, I'm Doug McNeil, and uh, I'd like to say thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Mostly Weather is a Metaphysics podcast, produced by Claire Nazir and edited by Simon Hammett.